Acts chapter 2, if you weren't with us, opens with probably one of the most radical events of human history. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on 120 disciples of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. It was an incredible event. And in response to the crowd that had gathered, Peter preaches an incredible sermon. Most of the chapter includes the sermon that Peter preached. Following his sermon, the results are incredible. The Holy Spirit moves, pricks the heart, hearts of those that were there. They surrender to the Lord. They submit. They repent. It's an amazing thing. 3,000 people in response to Peter's sermon, as the Spirit moves, are added to the church, added to their ranks. And following this, verse 43, where we left off last Sunday, fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, this phrase, with so much cool stuff happening in a chapter, the phrase, then fear came upon every soul, it presents an interesting transition from the results of Peter's sermon, the description he's just provided of the activity, the daily operations of this new church. It's kind of a bizarre transition. We go from, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and everyone was freaked out. It's kind of a bizarre transition in regards to the text. Now, it would seem that before Luke continues his descriptions of the daily life of the church's operations, he takes one verse before he gets ahead of himself to just let the reader, you and I know, that not every reaction to what happened on Pentecost was hunky-dory. He's preparing you for the real opposition that we'll see detailed in chapter 3. Now, let's unpack the text of what's happening. The word fear is the Greek word phobos meaning that which strikes terror. It's not that they were afraid, it's that they were horrified. Striking with terror. This terror came upon, which in the Greek literally means it arose upon every or past the collective soul or psyche. Luke is telling us that what began on Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had created an atmosphere of terror among the collective psyche of everyone that was living within Jerusalem. And we must ask, why in the world, based upon this event, were everyone so freaked out? Why were they terrified by what was taking place? And the answer is kind of complex, but I think simple. Though there could be no way that anyone present could dispute the supernatural underpinnings of what was occurring, I mean, the reality is that, as we're told, many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So the fact that a supernatural event was occurring in Jerusalem, no one could deny. Everyone accepted that as reality. But what became terrifying was that you couldn't attribute what was occurring to the work of one man. Like you could have, let's say, with the ministry of Jesus or John the Baptist before him. Or if you go way old, school the prophets. You see, it became evident to the masses that there was one supernatural force that was singularly working through a multitude of people. One force working through a multitude of people, meaning that there would be no way to stop it. You see, a work through one person, Jeremiah, you persecute him. A work through one person, Isaiah, you persecute him. A work through one person, Jesus, you crucify him or John the Baptist, you execute him. But with one force working through a multitude of people equally, 
there's no way to contain it. And this is what freaked them out. This is what was so horrifying. Note that the miracles, the signs, the wonders that were being done, look at the way it's, it's, it's set up. They were being done, how? Through the apostles, which means that the apostles weren't the ones doing them, but something else was doing them, and they were just a conduit of the activity. As we addressed with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we see this, this, this sound, and this is this light, one splitting into many, filling them individually, one source filling a multitude. You couldn't contain it, and this set the religious establishment on notice. Now, at this point in our transition and our workings through the chapter, Luke's told us that there were two components to church life that were important, that were pivotal, that were kind of foundational characteristics of this church. If you had to describe this group of believers from the 120 to now the 3,120, you would say first that they were unified, that there was unity among the church. Acts 2 verse 1 opens that they were all in one accord. But we also see community, unity and community. Acts 2 verse 42, they continued steadfastly in fellowship or genuine koinonia with one another. So that Luke said that there's unity and community and now he begins to describe the practical manifestation of these things. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and they had all in common, all things in common. They sold their possessions, their goods. They divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, communism states that what is yours is mine. Capitalism, the flip side to it, declares that what is mine is mine. But communism, communism simply affirms that what is mine, well, it's yours. You see, what Luke is describing here is a beautiful manifestation of their koinonia. This life sharing. They existed in a community that cared for the practical needs of all. Mark Driscoll tweeted out this week that the difference between a tax and a tithe is love. The government will take your tax. God invites you to give your tithe out of love. Now, Understand what this verse isn't describing. This verse is not to be used as justification for a trend we kind of saw in Christianity in the 70s. That is the idea of there being Christian communes, like the moving of the Spirit, we should sell everything, we should go move out in the middle of nowhere, kind of pull our collective goods, and just live in this kind of cool community like the church did in Acts. You can't make that, that case from this verse. First, there's no evidence that this demonstration of koinonia was anything more than temporary, that it was designed to meet a temporary need that existed at the moment within the church. Think about the context of what's happening. You have pilgrims from all over the world that have made their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits, the day of Pentecost. Unbeknownst to them, there's this roaring sound. They're curious. They get there, they're seeing something that they can't explain. This guy gets up, provides an explanation, and now you have 3,000 of these pilgrims that now have converted and given their lives to Jesus, and, and they're part of this new thing that's happening. You see, there, there existed, as a matter of practicality, a lot of people that needed places to live, that needed places to stay. You see, it could be said 
that with so many out-of-towners in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, that the verse here is simply describing a general hospitality that these Christians were showing each other for, the, for this moment. It's kind of akin to saying, you know, mi casa, su casa. Like, you're here, we're now brothers, this is great, the Holy Spirit, just come. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, this is awesome. Secondly, there's no evidence beyond it being a temporary manifestation of kononia. There's no evidence that communism was the ongoing practice of the church. From this point forward, you'll find no other description of the church existing and this style of community. So it's a one-off occasion meeting a temporary need. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't live in koinonia, fellowship. I refer to last Sunday's Bible study for more on that. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to, fa- house, to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Over the last 50 years, there have been two unique trends that have come to the forefront of Christianity. First, there's the rise of what we would call the modern megachurch and the rise of what some refer to as the home church movement. The Hartford Institute for Religion defines a megachurch as a Protestant congregation with a sustained average weekly attendance of 2,000 people. In 2013, the average weekly attendance of these megachurches were 3,943 people. Now, what I find interesting about the megachurch is according to Hartford, that there has been a rapid proliferation of megachurches in the United States beginning in the 1970s. There have always been examples of megachurches throughout history, but really beginning in 1970, there was a move towards this church model. In 1990, there were 350 megachurches by this definition. By 2000, the number rose to 600. Today, there are nearly 1,600 megachurches in America. Researchers explain this phenomenon by saying that it is a unique response to a distinctive cultural shift and changes and societal patterns throughout the industrialized urban and suburban areas of the world. Now, because of the unavoidable autonomy that an individual attendee is afforded at a megachurch in a sea of so many people, coupled with the obvious lack of biblical community that many of these megachurches are able to afford their attendees as just a matter of functionality. I mean, how do you manage so many folks? The home church movement was developed in many ways as a counter-reaction to the megachurch phenomenon. Now, proponents of the home church movement claim that small home churches are more preferable than large megachurches since they conclude that the home environment is more conducive for genuine community and effective outreach, that the church should operate in a smaller environment, more localized community, home fellowships, home churches, and to justify their position biblically. They argue that the home church model, in contrast to the megachurch model, is more consistent with the apostolic church presented in the book of Acts. But is it? 
Is the home church model actually more like the church we find in the book of Acts, or is the megachurch model more in line with the church we find in Acts? You see, I think it's the megachurch movement and not actually the home church movement. Let me explain. According to Acts 2, verse 46, this new church, the first church, the apostolic church of how many people? 3,120 members, a mega church by today's standards. They met together, how? Luke tells us. They met together, they gathered together corporately where? In the temple. And obviously they gathered in the temple because that was the only location that could probably effectively provide a place that so many people could gather. It was the largest structure there in Jerusalem. Furthermore, it would seem based upon the context and precedent that we find in Acts chapter 2, that this first church that met together corporately in the temple, they met for a specific reason. They met based upon context and precedent for worship. We see that at the beginning of Acts 2. Prayer, the beginning of Acts 2. The study of God's word, Peter taught them from the temple. Communion. Now, the challenge for the early church, for this church, is the same challenge for today's megachurch. How do you successfully facilitate genuine koinonia with so many people? Okay, you can teach to the masses and the masses can worship together and you can even pray together and you can take communion together. There are lots of functionalities that the church can do with a lot of people corporately together as one. But you can't share life with one another with so many people. I mean, functionally, it's impossible. According to the same verse, their remedy, the solution to the problem, is that the more individualized functions of fellowship. Note, he says breaking bread, not the breaking of bread, but he's describing a manifestation of koinonia, eating together and gladness, praising the Lord together and gladness, life sharing. He's not describing communion in this verse. But what's he saying? He's saying that the activities of fellowship hanging out with each other, getting to know one another, because it's not practical in the temple with the mass gathering, those functions should be reserved how? Well, he tells us, to smaller house-to-house communities. See, I believe that the recent trend within some of these megachurches to prioritize home fellowships or there's life groups or community groups. There's all kinds of trendy ways of defining it, but that in addition to gathering corporately on Sunday to worship God and to study his word, they break out into more individualized home communities for the purposes of fellowship so that they could break bread with one another. You see, the megachurch model where koinonia exists within the homes, I think is more in line with the church here in Acts, especially in contrast to the home church movement. You see, the notion that meeting in a home can or should act as a replacement for the corporate gathering of the church, it's not in line with the first church. They met together corporately in the temple. They had fellowship with one another in the home. It wasn't vice versa. Now, that's not to say that there aren't certain scenarios where the church needs to meet in the home. You, you talk about the underground church within China. The only, they couldn't gather corporately, and thus there was a functionality that the churches had to remain small for their own ability to remain vibrant. There are scenarios that the church can meet in the home in smaller pockets. But in regards to what we see in Acts, 
a mega church meeting together for worship, prayer, communion, the study of God's word. But when it came to hanging out, sharing life, because you couldn't do it corporately, they broke it out to the houses, to home by home. Now Luke closes the chapter by telling us that when the church is functioning according to the blueprint, according to the way that we see the church operating in the first two chapters, that the Lord did what? That he added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, one of the negative, unintended consequences of the rise of the megachurch is that somehow numbers have become the best way to evaluate a ministry's effectiveness. Since this has become the case, church growth has become our obsession with developing creative solutions to increase attendance as the church's main chief pursuit or emphasis. Now, in fairness, numbers, evaluating by numbers, that's a tricky thing. It's true, absolutely true, that a growing church is and can be an indicator of a healthy church. The old saying is true, healthy sheep reproduce. You see, there is nothing wrong with the desire to see the church grow numerically. It's actually really nice when the church that's growing numerically is the one that you've kind of chosen to be a part of. That's actually nice. And that's not wrong desiring that application. But with that being said, the problem with the obsession of numbers is that we have failed to consider that church growth doesn't always guarantee church health. You're a baseball fan, you know this reality. We've seen it as a trend over the last 15, 20 years. With human growth hormone and steroids, just because you're growing, just because you're getting stronger and bigger, doesn't guarantee you're actually healthier as a result. You see, growth in and of itself can actually be detrimental to a person's health and not a benefit. Think of the complexity of numbers, evaluating with numbers this way. Since a healthy church will always be a growing church, healthy sheep reproduce, we can use numbers to measure success, effectiveness. However, since a growing church is not automatically guaranteed to be a healthy church, numerical growth can then be misleading. It's kind of a complex way of looking at it. This is the reason that I love the way Luke closes his descriptions of the church in Acts, because how and why behind numerical growth is the only real way you can evaluate the health of the church and determine the extent of that ministry's true effectiveness. It's not just numbers, but you have to evaluate how and why those numbers are coming to the church. First, when determining health, we should consider how the church is growing. Look at this church. We're told how they're growing. How are they growing? The Lord added to the church. Numerical growth was an indicator of church health. Why? Because Luke directly attributes the growth to being a work of Jesus and not a work of the church. The Lord added to the church. You see, this church grew as a direct byproduct of Jesus' involvement 
his adding to the church. It was a work of God and could not be attributed as a work of man. The church in Acts, it was not growing because of a slick marketing campaign or some brilliantly devised advertisement created by a a creative team within the church. Peter, Peter was not Don Draper. The rest of the apostles were not madmen. This church, yeah, it had a solid core of leadership, but you can't even attribute the growth to the solid leadership. You can only attribute the growth to the magnetism of one charismatic leader. And who is that? The Lord Jesus. Sadly, many megachurches can and do directly correlate their growth numerically to a specific program, person, initiative, or characteristic of the church. When asked in an interview by Fox 5 to explain how in three years Hillsong Church, NYC, experienced incredible growth, the pastor, Carl Lentz, he explained that Hillsong's growth and diverse congregation was largely due to the church's location in the city known for diversity. He said, I think it's less to do about us, of which I'm like, yeah, for sure. Shouldn't be about you. And then he says, it's more to do with New York City. If you say it's, it's really got nothing to do with us, it's just Jesus, man, what he's doing. We're just glad to be a part of it. Right on. But not only does he affirm that it's not about them, he actually attributes their growth specifically to New York, a pagan city. He says it's, it's more about the fact that New York has a spectrum of people So as a church, we should also have the whole spectrum of people. He's saying that we have a diverse congregation. New York's diverse. That's why we're growing. Bummer, dude. It's also sad that many megachurches also rise and fall because of a cult-like following of a celebrity pastor that's really good at tickling ears, moving emotions, and invoking devotion. In the study I cited earlier, Hartford Institute, they made an interesting observation. They said that though evidence suggests that megachurches can remain vital following a shift in leadership from the founder to his successor, few of them have been exceptionally large for longer than the tenure of their current minister. Now, I understand. I understand why leadership remains vested in a church that's growing for all the wrong reasons, because they're growing it. That's exciting. I get, I get it why the leadership remains interested. It's their work. It's reflectant of their ingenuity. They feel a sense of pride based upon what they've done. I get that. But let me ask the attendee, and this is for those of you who are sitting here or those of you that are watching online. Do you want to be a part of a work of man's ingenuity? Or... Do you want to be a part of a work produced by God's direct supernatural involvement? See, I'm of the opinion that if you can't directly cite the growth of your church to Jesus, then why be involved at all? Instead, be a roadie for Dave Matthews' band. I mean, really, at that point, it's the same thing. So first, when determining growth, you've got to ask how the church is growing. If Jesus is adding right on, If anything else is the factor, bummer. But secondly, when determining health from this verse, we should also consider why the church is growing. 
You know, one of the big issues that I have with this entire topic is the reality that many churches with suspect methodology, theology, or leadership grow to enormous numbers. Have you ever seen that? Like, for example, Lakewood Church, pastored by Joel Osteen. I mean, the greatest Jerry Curl in the world. His church boasts a Sunday attendance of 43,500 attendees. That's more than the Braves can draw. North Point, pastored by Andy Stanley, boasts 30,629 attendees. That's a really specific number. Kind of strange. World Changers Church, pastored by Creflo Dollar. It boasts 15,000 attendees. New Birth, New, New Birth Missionary Church, pastored by Eddie Long, who settled out of court for a series of lawsuits brought against him by boys claiming they sexually abused him, still boasts today a church of 12,000 attendees. Until the church fired Rob Bell over his book, Love Wins, Mars Hill, located in Michigan, boasted 10,000 attendees with a heretic serving as their pastor. It's crazy. You see, when trying to wade through the complexities of evaluating church by the numbers, we would be wise to consider this important question. And we don't do this enough. Okay, church is big, lots of people coming. But let me ask, with whom are the membership roles increasing? We don't ask that question. Just because the church is growing, is that the end all? With whom is the church growing? Who's being added? Understanding who attends and why they attend is just as important in determining the health of the church as how many people are showing up. I am convinced that there are churches experiencing growth because they have produced an environment that appeals to what I will define as experience junkies. For the sake of illustration, the churches that appeal to the experience junkie we'll just call the low-rise church. That is a reference to the wire. And the leadership behind the low-rise church that appeals to the experience junkie, we're just gonna call them, for the sake of illustration, dealers. You see, an experienced junkie is a person who craves, above all else, the chemical high caused by a spiritual experience. As with all junkies, these people seek out a good dealer who can provide whatever stimulant is required to make them feel good. If the dealer provides the right fix, the junkie keeps coming back for more. Understand, the low-rise church has been designed by very creative dealers to be a location where the experienced junkie can come get their next spiritual hit. Through the stirring of the emotions of music, the stimulating awe produced by cutting-edge technology, the inspiration yielded by spiritual antidotes. These churches often throw in a social cause designed to make the person feel like they're making a difference in the world. The low-rise church is designed to leave the junkie with a sense of euphoria. You leave pumped up. It should also be pointed out that as a matter of wise business, most dealers don't double as moralists. You won't find the moralists in the low-rise church. Dealers don't have a sense of obligation to notify the junkie that their behavior indicates a serious problem that might prove detrimental to health. 
If you're a dealer letting your customers know that what you're about to sell them might kill them, they're not going to buy from you often. Like, who's the Debbie Downer? Like, no drug dealer wants to be a Debbie Downer. You see, this is why the low-rise church service is designed, it's aimed, it's created to produce a high amongst those attending while avoiding any downers. You will never hear one of these dealers, pastors of the low-rise church, addressing core problems to human beings. Core problems, you know, things that are kind of a downer, that don't feel great considering your sin, rebellion, judgment, hell, conviction, consequences. You see, the low-rise church experiences growth because they feed the need and the junkie to feel spiritual while never addressing the reality of being spiritual. And with this in mind, these experienced junkies are always looking to attend the church that is new, that is trending, that is most exciting, because they'll gravitate to whatever low-rise church is cooking up the next coolest, greatest product. Now, though the low-rise church does experience growth, a church model with dealers facilitating junkies is hardly a remedy for health. Shocker. You see, with any junkie, the problem is at some point, the chemical reaction that you're inducing will naturally normalize, which means that whatever the low-rise church was doing to stimulate the audience that's attending is no longer producing the same high. And what happens next is messy. An unsatisfied junkie will either demand a new experience, forcing the dealer to cook up something fresh and new. The junkie will simply leave to find a better dealer. Or maybe they lead the low-rise church for the high-rise church. Or the church wises up, puts everybody through detox, and that's nasty. See, this is why Scripture tells us that a healthy church is one that worships God both in spirit, an experience, but also truth, something that tethers us to reality. I hope you understand that your church does not exist to make the audience feel good. That's not the purpose of church, to tickle ears. Rather, the church exists to encourage believers to live in a Christ-centered experience tethered to the reality of God's word. That's the purpose of the church, not tickling ears. I'm also convinced that there are churches experiencing growth because they've produced an environment that appeals to the runaway. Once again, for the sake of illustration, we'll refer to these churches as the brothel church and the leadership running them as misters. I only say misters because I really wanted to use the word pimp, but my wife didn't feel like using the word pimp from the pulpit multiple times throughout the sermon would be appropriate. So we'll just call them misters because I'm not allowed to say pimp often. Yes, this is the church you're attending. In most instances, a brothel, it only exists as a matter of last resort for a person. The mister, in charge, has no interest in the long-term health or prognosis of those who come to him. Rather, the mister exists to facilitate a mutually beneficial temporary solution. Like you don't go to the brothel church because it's anything other than a last resort. It's interesting, but the brothel church is successful because they've created the perfect environment for people seeking to escape from accountability or authority at a church they're even presently attending. 
Therefore, the brothel church appeals to the malcontents that find it easier to run away from their problems as opposed to addressing them head on. The runaway tends to be a person who's seeking to be accepted as they are rather than being challenged to be something better than what they are. They find acceptance at the brothel. And since the brothel church will accept everyone without preconditions, open arms, and will allow that person to do whatever they want, as long as, you know, it's mutually beneficial for the mister, by design, the brothel church is ideal for the no one has the right to tell me what to do crowd. They gravitate to this church. Now, though the brothel church does experience growth, a church model that has pimps enabling runaways is hardly a remedy for health. Shocker. You see, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that a church full of people running from their issues is not a remedy for success or health. Tragically, the brothel church ends up being nothing more than a cesspool of people that are hurting and damaged, that are, in, that are serving the needs of the mister, but never receiving care for themselves. Yes, the brothel church might give a person a place to go, and the mister might accept them as they are, but the best place for the runaway is often to go home and face the very thing that they were running from in the first place. Finally, I'm convinced that there are churches experiencing growth because they've produced an environment that appeals to everyone. Let's refer to these as the circus church and the leaders behind them as ringmasters. You know, at the opening of a circus, the ringmaster dressed up in his really bad-looking tuxedo, he comes out, he enters the arena, and he declares for all to hear, come one, come all. You see, the ringmaster's job is to ensure that everyone attending the circus feels welcome and warm and comfortable. Sad to say, but some of the largest churches in America had the exact same ministry philosophy. In order to appeal to a wider array of the population, the circus church focuses its attention on everyone who attends leaving the event, nothing more than having a non-threatening, entertaining, positive experience. Though the ringmaster of the circus church might teach from the Bible, he will never teach the Bible. As a matter of practicality, the ringmaster will refrain from addressing doctrinal issues in the fear of becoming divisive. He'll minimize the moral stances of scripture for fear of offending the listener. He emphasizes instead universal antidotes of love and peace and personal improvement, things we all can agree on. In the circus church, the two-dimensional perspective of absolute truth is replaced with a Unitarian kaleidoscope of being non-judgmental and tolerant, making the circus church the perfect location for the Jesus loves me just the way I am crowd. This is why the circus church refrains from taking moral stands. From homosexuality to promiscuity, they refrain from addressing things that might divide. They do this with the hopes that they can create an umbrella large enough for everyone to congregate together comfortably. Now, though the circus church experience is probably the largest growth of all churches, a church model that has a ringmaster attempting to appeal to everyone is hardly a remedy for health. Might be a remedy for large numbers, but not health. 
understand this Unitarian message of the ringmaster. It attracts an interesting mixture of people, really two people to be exact. First, the circus church will attract spiritual children who would rather eat cotton candy than ever grow up to spiritual maturity. And secondly, the circus church creates the perfect environment for an unbeliever who desires religious experience without any of the messy religious conviction. Though the circus church will initially reject that initial notion of spiritual immaturity, I've actually heard these churches, and I'm not going to go into specifics or address them by name, but I've heard these churches, the ringmasters of these churches, boast about how many unbelievers attend a Sunday morning service. These pastors wear it as a badge of honor that non-Christians feel comfortable within the walls of their circus church. But may I ask for a moment, where have we developed this idea that the corporate gathering of the church was designed for the unbeliever? Like at what point in, the, in church history did we decide that the numbers of non-Christians attending our services on Sunday was actually something to be desired? Like it would seem from Acts chapter 2, that the reason the church gathered was for what? Bible study, worship, prayer, communion, fellowship? How are any of these things commissioned with the unbeliever in mind? See, in Acts, the church existed. Why? Well, I can set up the solid argument, but I'll shorten it. The church existed for the edification of the body, and the equipping of the saints. That's why the church existed. Scripture is clear that the church was instituted by Jesus to be a mechanism by which Christians could be equipped, then sent into the world with the mission of reaching the unbeliever. The church was never a place, never to be a place, where the pagan unbeliever congregated to feel welcome or comfortable. Now, yes, to experience love, to come to a place to engage in grace and forgiveness. But that's not the mission. In conclusion, consider for a moment who is being added to this church. I, I've missed this maybe every time I've read through this until my prep for this study. Because we always focus on the Lord added to the church, right? But who did he add? Those who what? Who were being saved. You see, Jesus was adding to the church non-believers? No. He was adding to the church people who were being saved. Baby Christians. Which means that they weren't in the church because the Lord had to add them to the church. The believers were going out and evangelizing and shining a light and people were being drawn to it. There was one-on-one -on -one evangelism. People were getting saved and then they would come to the church. Why? because baby Christians need to be encouraged. You see, we discussed this last Sunday, but the church in Acts existed. They had developed a strategy by which they could help new Christians grow into spiritual maturity. Understand, the church in Acts was not a low rise where junkies came for an emotional fix. Judaism took care of that, man. The church in Acts was not a brothel where people could run away from their issues. 
The church in Acts was not a circus tent that everyone could come to feel welcome. No. The church in Acts was a place where those who were being saved could come to grow in their relationship with Jesus. How? Through the teaching of his word, by engaging in worship, by enjoying, by enjoying fellowship with other believers, communion with their Savior, and prayer. Please understand, it's my longing, the longing of my heart, to see the Lord add numerical growth to Calvary 316. I'm unashamed in that. Healthy sheep reproduce. Our church should grow and should be growing and has been growing. I want to see our church grow, but understand, I want to see the Lord add to Calvary 316. You see, whose job is it to add to this church? It's not mine. I don't want it. If you think that's my job, I quit. See, my job is not to have a pressure of adding. I don't get a pride out of how many people come. It's Jesus's job to add. My job is to focus our attention on being the healthiest church we can be by seeking to be the most biblical church we can be. My focus is making sure that you're healthy because if that happens, you'll reproduce naturally. It's a matter of reality that since we teach the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, the experienced junkie will not find C316 as exciting as the low-rise church. It's also a matter of reality that since we find it essential that people deal with their issues rather than run away, Calvary 316 will not be seen as accepting as the brothel church. It's a matter of reality that since we spend our time together on Sunday equipping believers for the ministry, that not everyone will find us as relevant or even tolerant as the circus church. And if these realities hinder our numerical growth, then so be it. At least there will come a day that I can stand before God with a good conscience for the kind of church he entrusted to me to pastor. There are no shortcuts for real growth. That said, I do believe with all of my heart that Jesus will add numerical growth to our church in both a healthy and divine way if we're found faithful to model his blueprint for his church. The Lord added to the church daily, those who are being saved. And so, Father, 